As we think of sorrow to joy, good coming out of bad, life after death, this is the gospel pattern. This is the path of Christ from suffering to glory. And this is the path of every believer who puts their faith in Him, of one of suffering to glory, sorrow to joy, death to life. And for us, the sorrow over sin must precede the joy of restoration. As we approach Easter next week, and as we look at Christ approaching the cross, we need to meditate on this because the world hates this message. The world wants to avoid sorrow and pain at all costs. Why must difficult things have to happen? But our Savior went to the cross, endured sorrow and weeping and suffering for our life, for our glory. Jesus, when He begins His Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He begins there, the poor in spirit. Those who are broken and beaten over their own sin. Those who are filled with sorrow because they know that they are sinful before a holy and righteous God. It is those who know their own spiritual poverty and inability. Those receive the kingdom of heaven because they know where their righteousness lies. This is a good message and an encouragement for the saints because for the saints, suffering and sorrow is temporary, but joy lasts forever. And I want to jump right into a pretty deep passage, but this connects what we've been talking about the last couple weeks. So if you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to help you out. If you don't know where 1 Peter is, go to the end of your Bible. It's Revelation. There's four small books before it, and then you'll find 1 Peter. So you got 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 2nd, and 3 John, and Jude. So you get in 1 Peter chapter 4. It's going to connect what we talked about a couple weeks ago. The persecution of the saints. The world hating his own. The world hating those who represent Christ. And Paul and Peter take this a step further and tell us to share in the sufferings of Christ. Which is just craziness to the world. As you can see, this is part of who we are. This is our DNA. 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were to happen to you. We could spend a lot of time on that verse right there. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. This pattern, suffering to rejoicing, suffering to glory, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Amen. But let, no one, uh, let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. It is not suffering for Christ if, you self, if it's self-inflicted. If you sin and do something stupid, you're not suffering for Christ. I've heard people say this. It's foolishness. Yet, if any of you suffer as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if righteousness, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, 
Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Christians should not fear sorrow and suffering. Christ suffered for us. It was his sorrow that led to our life. And the world tries to avoid suffering at all, possi- at all possibilities, right? But many times we embrace it because we know that it is through the suffering, through the trials, that we are refined, that we are grown. Uh, there's a political commentator. His name's Dennis Prager. He also happens to be Jewish. He talks often about how much he appreciates Christians and how Christians are, are consistently kind to him and how they, they treat him better than anyone else. But he says, the thing I admire most about Christians is their view of suffering. Christians embrace suffering. He said, Jews hate suffering. To the Jews, suffering stinks. We'll do everything we can to avoid it. And you see that throughout their their history. They turn their back on on, on God. They, They turn to other gods as soon as something gets difficult. And he understands this. This is what sets us apart. We are not intimidated by suffering because our example is the suffering servant who laid down his life for us. So I want to get into our text, and he's going to talk about what he must go do and what they are there to do when they witness this. So beginning in John 16, starting in verse 16. A little while, and you'll see me no longer. And again a little while, and you'll see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. But Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she is sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been, brought, has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you shall receive, that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are instructed by our Savior to ask in his name. We can come before you because he intercedes for us. Our high priest has gone before us and makes intercession for our prayers. So we ask in the name of Jesus that you give us understanding. We ask in the name of Jesus that you give us humility. We ask in the name of Jesus that you make us weep and mourn over our own sin. We ask in the name of Jesus that you remind us of our joy in Christ. We ask in the name of Jesus for those who do not know you that they would turn from their sin. That they would weep over their brokenness and their inability to save themselves. And they will look to Jesus for joy 
and peace and hope everlasting. We pray in the name of Jesus that as your church, as your body, we will be faithful. We will be obedient. We will be loving. We will be a beacon in this world. That you comfort those who mourn. That you encourage those who are brokenhearted. That you put your joy within us so that we would be complete and our joy would be in you. Because of the cross, we can confidently and boldly pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen and reigning Lord. Amen. So, look at this exchange. The disciples are confused. A little while, and then a little while, and then a little while. So today's sermon is going to be brought to you by the phrase, a little while. And it's going to take us a little while to figure out exactly what's going on here. Now, the disciples are confused because this is confusing. I mean, on the surface, it's like, you know, riddle me this, Peter. What's going on here? Jesus is not speaking plainly to them. And they don't understand, you know, how will he disappear and how will he reappear and what does this have to do with going to the Father? You know, but how could they know this side of the cross? I mean, we, we have a purview that they don't have, so you know, we can take it a little easy on them. And this is not the first time Jesus says this to them. If you look back in chapter 14 of John, he essentially says the same thing in verse 18 to 21. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live... You also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Of course, this brings more questions from the disciples, questions that they still do not have answers to. So it's important for us to understand, in in general, Prophetic language is not always meant to give us the the details. You know, we are people, we want dates and times, we want specific details, lay out a plan for us, let me understand the plan so I can put my trust in the plan. But prophetic language is not supposed to do that. Prophetic language isn't to satisfy all of, of our concerns, and Jesus is rarely concerned with dates and times, but he's concerned with with principles that we can put into practice when these things happen. Don't worry about when it is. I'm telling you a little while. But here's what you need to know when they do happen. So a couple things I, I, I want to, to, to bring up as we go through this. And anytime you're reading prophetic language, remember that. Because people always ask me, well, what does this symbolize and what does this mean? Be more concerned what the, the theological intent is. Are we to be encouraged? Are we to be warned? Uh, are, are, are we to be watchful? You know, all of, all of these things. The details are less important than the principles that are underneath them. So a couple things to, to, to get into here as we look at really verse 16 through 18. A little while you will see me and, uh, excuse me, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while you will see me. This word see here, there's nothing mystical going on. It means see, it means to behold, it means to, to look upon. They will see him. So that, that's a little indicator. And so as the disciples go back and forth, and what does a little while mean? This gets even more complicated in the Greek. It's one word, mikros, which means little. So it, in the Greek, it's a little, you will see me no longer, and again a little, and you will see me. Uh, so the, the, the time and the while are implied here. There's a little bit of time. So this is very vague, and it's vague on purpose. And Jesus rarely gives the details that 
that we want to satisfy our desires. Because Jesus wants them to trust in him. So then the next question comes up, what does a little while mean? Now, some of the best commentators debate this, and there's three options. And I think it's important that we walk through these. So does it mean a little while, you will no longer see me, that means I'm going to die. And then a little while, you'll see me again, I'll rise again. Or does it mean a little while, uh, you will no longer see me as I go back to the Father, and then you will see me again when I return in, in my second coming, or you see me in glory. Or does it mean a little while, you'll no longer see me when he goes away, but when I send the Spirit, you will truly see me with eyes that can comprehend me. There are scholars that I really respect who hold each of those positions. Um, and there's a sense in which all of those are true. But I think there's an immediate application here, and Jesus will give us some clues as we kind of walk through here. And so how does this fit together? A little while you will no longer see me, then you will see me, and going to the Father. Well, what we know about the timeline in hindsight, we can kind of put this together. A little while you will no longer see me. A little while, in a matter of hours, I will die. I will be put in the grave, and you won't see me for three days. And then a little while, those, those three days, so we've got a little while hours, and a little while days, you will see me again. So they will, they will not see him with, with their eyes, and they will behold him with their eyes, and he will go to the Father. But just like we're tempted to do often, the disciples are looking for a clear timeline. Okay, tell us when this is going to happen, and when this is going to happen, and how does going to the Father fit into all that? And Jesus is not concerned with the timeline. He's concerned with them understanding his coming and going and what it means for them and what they should hold on to in that time. So hopefully that, that helps. Because when we're talking about prophetic texts and even moments when Jesus and the prophets speak prophetically, speak about things that are to happen, the point is rarely the how or, or when. The point is what is most important to know and remember for the hearers. So Jesus is conveying two things here. When he speaks of a little while, he's saying that time goes quickly. You, you, you don't be surprised. These things are going to come up on you pretty quickly. And things are going to happen soon. And sorrow and my absence the, will, will feel like a long time, but it will just be a little while. So we know that this life is a vapor and, and things go quickly. So he uses a little while here to put them at ease. That this is not going to be a prolonged process. He also says, when he speaks of seeing me, he knows that their, their comfort and their connection to him is attached to sight. That they know they're in his presence. They know what to expect. The, the thought of him leaving is, is heartbreaking. But when he speaks of, you will see me again, he's giving them assurance. He's telling them not to lose heart. I will disappear for a moment, but you will see me again. But more importantly, as we'll unpack this passage, you are mine. No one can take my joy away from you. You will, you will see me. No one will separate you from me. So a little while, these, these things are going to happen, but it won't be as long or as difficult as you think. But most importantly, if you're worried about not seeing me, you will see me, and you will be with me forever. And he's going to unpack this uh, as we move on. So we've got these self-conscious disciples, some of them saying to one another, what is this that he's saying to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? So you notice, they, don't, they, they never address Jesus, they never ask him, they're muttering amongst themselves. And Jesus knew what they wanted to ask. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while you, you will see me? 
they're self-conscious. They're embarrassed. They've stuck their foot in their mouth so many times. Jesus is speaking to them. They feel like they should be understanding this, but they're not. Common human emotion. But he does with them like he often does with us. We're afraid to go to the Lord. We're afraid to admit we don't have the answers. We're afraid to admit we don't have it all figured out, so we mutter to ourselves and amongst ourselves. But Jesus approaches them. Jesus initiates with them. He knows what's going on. So he condescends to them. And of course, he's going to clear up all their confusion, right? He's going to answer all their questions, give them a clear timeline, and all of their their curiosity is going to be satisfied, right? Of course not. That would be too easy. He loves us too much to make it easy. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. How is this an answer to the question? What do you mean by a little while? We talked about this before, but anytime he says truly, truly, it's for emphasis, but it's also building on what has come before. This is the answer. And this is actually better because he prepares them for the time. And he does the same thing with us. If we knew all the, all the details, the, the, the whens and the hows and all of that, and if we had a full plan in front of us, we would trust the plan. So many of us struggle with, I, I can't do anything until I have a plan. I need a plan. I need something concrete to trust in. Jesus is helping them here. I will not give you something else to trust in. Trust in me. He is teaching them to walk by faith and not by sight. He is teaching them sorrow is coming, weeping is coming, suffering is coming. But there's joy in the morning. Look to me in this, through the sorrow. Our God does not always save us out of the difficulty. He rarely does. But he promises to bring us through it. One of the best examples of that in Scripture that I love, in Daniel, I think it's 7, the fiery furnace, or Daniel 3. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach, and Abednego. So difficult to pronounce, but their Hebrew names are even worse, so we'll take the Babylonian names. Uh, these are Daniel's three friends. These are faithful Israelites who will not bow to the golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar has built. And Nebuchadnezzar has this fiery furnace, and he wants everyone to worship his gods because he's got people chirping in his ear and, and, and telling him and really wants to turn him against the Hebrews. And so he gets mad that they won't worship his false god, and he turns the, 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 the heat up in this furnace, so anyone who even gets near it is incinerated. And he, and he sentences them to be thrown into this fiery furnace. And yes, the story's great, but they give one of the greatest lines in all of Scripture before they go in. They boldly stand before Nebuchadnezzar. Our God is able to save us, and he will certainly deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we will never bow down and worship your false gods. Our God is able to save and he will certainly deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we will never bow down to your false gods. They knew their God. They feared him way more than they feared a fiery furnace. And what God does is beautiful. He doesn't put out the fire. He doesn't have Nebuchadnezzar change his orders. He puts them in there. And either himself or an angel walks around with them. They see four figures walking around in this fire. That is what our God does. So often we pray, deliver me from the fire. But we forget the second half of that. Even if you don't, I will still praise you. I will not serve anyone else because I know you are the God who delivers through fire. And this is what Jesus is teaching here. 
There is sorrow and there is weeping, but I will deliver you through it. This is not the end. Put your trust in me. So let's walk through this verse and see what Jesus is doing here. Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, look at what's repeated. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. If I didn't emphasize that for you, you should have picked up that Jesus says, you will, you will, the world will, you will. This is a certainty. Jesus emphasizes this and repeats it because it's going to happen. And you will weep and you will lament. These are external expressions. We're not as external and expressive as the Jews were. But weeping and lamenting was, was visible. You would mourn and you would cry out loud and you would shout. But also so was rejoicing. The lamenting and weeping of the people is external and it is expressive. So is the rejoicing of the world. It is external and it is expressive. They are celebrating when the disciples are weeping. But as we know, these external expressions are temporary. But underneath the surface, there's deeper internal conditions. Underneath the surface, there's a state of being. Sorrow and joy are internal conditions. They, they, they last longer. You can only cry but so many tears, but the internal sorrow hangs on for longer. But so does the joy. So Jesus is setting them up for this transition of, you're going to have some external responses. You're going to see some external things, but don't get caught up in that. There's an internal change that needs to happen. And the whole point of this passage, this verse, is that the sorrow is inevitable. It is part of life, and not just general sorrow, but there's going to be extreme sorrow that's coming in a few moments, but for a little while. And joy is always the result for the believer. Your sorrow will not be forever. Your weeping will not be forever. Don't get caught up in the temporary externals. Jesus is telling them the result. Here's what this will result in. And the cross is the prime example of this. The prime example of the Christian symbol that shows sorrow to joy, weeping to rejoicing. And I think this makes the strongest case for a little while. You're going to weep and mourn for a little while. You're going to be sorrowful, but that's going to turn into joy. They're going to see all of this transpire within the next few days. This range of emotion from the lowest low to the highest high. And Jesus is setting them up for that. And so this is a great historical example for the 11. They're hearing these words, and they're going to experience this in just a moment. So this is true, but there's also an important theological parallel that's underneath the surface that is true for us as well. We, we were not standing there. We did not weep when Jesus was, was nailed to the cross. We did not stand at the open tomb when it was empty. But for us... When we look to the cross, we see Christ's righteousness. And we weep at our own wickedness. We mourn and we are sorrowful because our perfect Savior went to a cross that we deserved. We are sorrowful because we deserve death and we can't save ourselves. And that should make us weep. That should break us to our core. This is the sorrow before the joy. This is the bad news before the good. This is the the suffering that we must embrace. Because our Savior suffered for us. But, on the other side of the cross, there is rejoicing. Our Redeemer lives. 
And he died and lives again that we might live again with him. And there is no greater joy. This is what Paul predicated his whole ministry on. Christ and him crucified. I want to share a couple verses that are powerful. Look at Galatians 6, 1, 14. It'll be on the screen. But far be it from me to boast, except I will boast in nothing else except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That is a dividing line like no other. I will boast in the bloody cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to this world. I have died to myself. I have died to my flesh that I might live again to Christ. And he says again in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's foolishness. Wait, this helpless man on a tree covered in, in blood? Like, what? But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the gospel. Except for the cross, there is no life. It is the power of God. Without sorrow and weeping, there can be no joy and rejoicing. Without death, there can be no life. And this is why we sing and rejoice and sing these songs about a cross that is foolishness to the world. Because without the bloody cross and the empty tomb, there's no cause for rejoicing. There's nothing to sing about. Because we're still dead in our sins. And the cross has been the uniting symbol of fellowship for the church from its earliest days. It's confounded the rest of the world. Because through the, through the cross, we have reconciliation, we have new birth, we have life, and we have joy. So when Jesus says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. He knows that what you must go through is worth it for what is on the other side. But there's one more thing we need to notice about this verse. Right in the middle. But the world will rejoice. When the disciples are weeping, the world will rejoice. And you notice as we go throughout John, the emotions of the world is always contrary to the emotions of the disciples. When the disciples rejoice, they are angry. When the disciples are weeping, they are rejoicing. The disciples reap over the crucifixion while the world celebrates. But we weep over our sin while the world celebrates its sin. Don't be surprised at this. Don't marvel at this. When, so, when the world celebrates sin that, that, that turns our stomach. However, their joy will not last. Our joy will go on forever. And our suffering will not last but their suffering will go on forever. This is also the contrast that is present here. And then Jesus goes on probably to give the, probably definitely to give the best human parallel to this. Verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been brought into the world. What a great example of human weeping and sorrow that turns into inexpressible joy. Not that I have any idea, and I'm not going to, to uh, attempt to. But we know this. We, we know the effect that, that, that pregnancy has on women. Your, your, your body's affected. Your emotions are affected. Your, your thoughts are affected. There is pain. 
There is weeping. There is sorrow. But the pain is a mere memory once the child is born. What a beautiful picture. That, that this, the, the joy of new life coming into this world overshadows all of the pain. And before long, you forget the pain. You get right back on the saddle and sign up for pain again. And in this congregation, sometimes again. <laughs> because the inexpressible joy that comes from life is worth all of the pain. And out of weeping comes new life and rejoicing. And what a beautiful parallel of the cross. That the pain and the anguish that leads up to it leads to rejoicing after that. So, uh, ladies, I just hope you take some encouragement and comfort in this because I, I will not try to put myself in your shoes. But when you are in those, those times, look at what comes out of the sufferings of Christ and look at what he uses as an example for the life that he gives us. And Paul uses the same example in Romans chapter 8. And he talks about all of the, the world having birth pangs. Everything that, that we see, all creation affected by sin, are birth pangs at the revealing of Christ, at the new life that he will bring about, at the revealing of the saints. And so we see this happen in women, but we also see this happen in the entire world. It is groaning, these birth pangs, for this new life that will come into it. And then we can bring it down to earth, too, because there's a spiritual parallel. Any of you, like myself, who have ever lived outside of Christ, who have ever rejoiced in their own sin, I know for me and I know for many of you, it was the darkest moment in your life. The most sorrow, the most pain you have ever felt. I remember that moment when all I felt was darkness because I fully realized what it meant to be separated from God. It's the most real tears I've ever shed in my life because I knew that on my own there was only darkness and death and I needed to be reconciled to a holy God. And if any of you have been there, you know that your greatest pain, your greatest sorrow turned into your greatest joy because it was that the Lord used to break you and draw you to himself. So in this life of struggling, and in this life of pain and sorrow, how do we endure? How did Jesus endure the cross? And I think it's important for us to look at Hebrews chapter 12 here. It's going to be on the screen. I want, to, I want you to focus on this. So if you know where you are in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11 is the, the hall of faith. Those who, without seeing Christ, walked through life without something to see. They walked by faith, and they didn't receive what we receive. So when the chapter begins with therefore, look what happened right before that. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the writer of Hebrews wants the readers to see the faith that preceded them. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. How do we endure? We lay aside all these things and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we endure? How do we run what is set before us? He gives us the answer, looking to Jesus. How do we run with endurance? How do we set aside sin? We look to him. How is Jesus our example in this? He is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. How did Jesus get through the cross? How did he take the beatings and the, and the, the mocking and his very organs showing, the wrath of God poured out on him, the joy that was set before him? 
The joy that He would bring the dead into life. That He would reconcile His own. That He would be our Redeemer. That joy was worth all the pain. The worst pain anyone has ever felt. It was the joy that was set before Him. Where He endured the cross. There is no greater suffering and there is no greater joy. Despising the shame, not listening to the world. And his reward, he is seated in the right hand of the throne of God. How did Jesus endure with the joy set before him? How do we endure? Because our Savior went before us and he is seated on his throne. And he considered death on a cross for us joy. There is no greater example of sorrow to joy. There is no greater Savior. When anyone tells you there's another way, tell them that. Does your false God lay down his life and consider it joy to die for his beloved? We look to Jesus. So this is how we view this life. This is how we endure. We look to him, the founder and perfecter of our faith. This is how we view persecution. This is still in the context of the world is going to hate you. You will have sorrow. You will have weeping. But there is joy. And so remember the words of Jesus. It will be difficult for the moment. But our efforts, our work for the kingdom of God, keeping our eyes on heavenly things in the name of Christ that result in heavenly riches and eternal joy is worth it. Any suffering in this life, any pain, any discomfort, any sorrow for the name of Christ is worth it. Consider yourself blessed. And take this to heart. Because if this is what our Savior is willing to do for us, what should our response to that be in His name? And this is why Jesus sets this up the way He does. Verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. So also you have sorrow now. I think this is further evidence that he's speaking of now, the hour that will soon come in a mere matter of hours, that he will be delivered over and he will be put on this cross. Now you will have suffering. But the joy is when you will see me again. In the resurrection, there is joy, sorrow to joy. And there's something that is amazing here that skipped me the first ten times I read this. But look what he says. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Up to this point, you will see me again. You will see me again. This is mutual anticipation. Jesus is also excited. He knows that they're going to be hurt to see him again, that that they can't see him again. But he's anticipating the same thing. I will see you again. This is how much he loves us. He's looking forward to this hour, but he's looking forward more. When he can reconcile us to himself and there will no longer be a separation for sin because he has put his righteousness upon us. And then the most encouraging line in this whole thing, and no one will take your joy from you. Man, there are so many things in our lives that want to take our joy from us and we let it. We let lies of the world and we let the enemy and we let our flesh take our joy from us. We forget the gospel and we rest in our circumstances. 
But our joy in Christ and his in us is permanent and no one can take it from you. There is sorrow and weeping in this life. But in the finished work of Christ, there is peace and there is joy. And it outweighs whatever sorrow and weakening weakening come before. No one can take that from us. We read in John chapter 10, verse 28, these emphatic words of Jesus. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one will be able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. No one will be able to snatch you out of his hand. That same chapter in Romans, at the very end, there's these these groanings that are going on in the world and then the saints of God are revealed. And what does Paul say to those saints? The end of Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen, somebody. Jesus says, I will put my joy in you and no one can take it from you. This is the greatest encouragement we will ever hear. Our Savior endured sorrow and weeping, and pain, and death for that joy. That joy that can never be taken from us. The cross cannot be undone. It is finished. The labor pains are for a little while, but the life that comes out on the other side remains forever. And so in that, Jesus sets up this last section here. And in that day, you will ask nothing of me. So in that day, we have to understand the, the, the figure of speech. Throughout Scripture, we see day and we see hour. It is not a literal calendar day. It's not only referring to the day that they see him come out of the tomb. But it refers to an age. In that day, in this age, the age of the church, there's something new that is coming. In that day, what will come soon, in this little while, you will ask nothing of me. So it's an interesting phrase. You ask nothing of me. Jesus is talking about them being directly with him. They they were scared just a few moments ago to to speak to him. But he's going to tell them where they will go for asking. In that day, you ask nothing of me. But truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So this is now a new age for the church. It is a new age with the Spirit as guide and teacher. Jesus as high priest and intercessor, and the Father of lights is the giver of every good gift who we have direct access to. We go to the Father in the name of the Son, and Jesus creates this pattern for praying that we still have to this day. We ask of the Father who gives freely in the name of the Son, and we do it by the power of the Spirit that dwells within us. The divine economy opened up for us. The reality that Father, Son, and Spirit, God for all eternity... Condescended to us and brought us into this conversation that we can now speak to the Father as Jesus did because Jesus, our intercessor, intercedes for us, our mediator between God and man, and the Spirit that dwells within us utters words even when we don't know what to say. And when we do know what to say, it is the Spirit within us that is teaching us and directing us to the Lord. And He says this 
He says, truly, truly, again, Jesus loves this. Amen, amen. It is true, it is true. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name. Now, we have to clarify this. Because I think some people treat praying in Jesus' name as like the magic code word. Like if I say enough good things... God might listen, but if I pray in Jesus' name, like how Catholics will say, if you pray in Mary's name, Jesus has to listen to his mother. This is not what's going on here. When you pray in the name of Jesus, you are submitting yourself to the highest authority. I'm praying in that name, not because I think it will sway God to, to do what I want him to, but I am praying in the name that is salvation for all who call on it. I am praying in the name that is King of kings and Lord of lords. I am praying for the name that is sitting at the right hand of the Father in glory. I am praying for the Savior who went before me and who shed his blood for me on that tree. I am praying in the name of that Jesus. Because I know there is no other name I can call on. There is no other power to answer prayers. This is not just some cold word. Don't think lightly about using the name of Jesus. It is a privilege and it is an honor. Jesus went to the cross so that we can pray in his name. Verse 24. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. This is true. Jesus walks with them. They didn't have to ask anything in his name. They didn't have to appeal to, the God, on, uh, to God on behalf of him because they could just ask. But when he goes, he gives them the the, the provision. I have walked with you so that you could address God. But one day I will not walk with you. But you will be able to address him in my name. And just moments after, the disciples are muttering amongst themselves. And they wonder what Jesus is saying. And they're afraid to ask him. He encourages them. Again, in their weakness, he says, You, up to this point, you have not asked anything in my name. But ask. You will receive that your joy may be full. This is an encouragement to these scared disciples who are afraid to put their foot in their mouth. Just like us who are so often afraid to put their foot in their mouth. I don't know how many people I've talked to who said, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to say. Ask in the name of Jesus. If your faith is in him, you could drool all over yourself. He will still give you the desires of your heart if it is to the praise of his glory. You've not asked anything in my name yet, but you will. After this little while. This is why he sets all this up. I must go to the grave first. I must rise again. And I must ascend to the right hand of my Father as your intercessor. And in that day, when these things are accomplished, when I am in my rightful place, ask anything. Direct it to my Father. Pray in my name. In submission to who Jesus is. Because, and not for selfish gain. So many people want to approach Jesus for what he can give them. If you do not submit to his lordship, if you do not weep at your own sin, if you do not rejoice in the risen Christ, he will say, I never knew you. Not everyone who calls on the Lord in that way. Jesus The scriptures tell us as well that the prayers of the unrighteous are are not heard. But if we find our joy in him, he puts his joy within us. And we saw in John 15, 11, I love this verse. These things I have spoken to you that 
my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. This is his desire for us. Not for selfish gain, but for joy in Christ. To be full of joy, whether we live in a mansion or live under a bridge. To have full joy in him. This is what we ask for. This is how we approach him. Jesus came to earth to reconcile sinful man to holy God. All according to the Father's will, because of the Son's finished work, we have direct access to the Father now. And because of the Spirit dwelling within us, we are able to speak a divine language that He is the only translator for. This divine communication is open for us through the cross. And this is the joy and the rejoicing of the believer. And it could only have come out of the weeping and sorrow of the cross. So just a few thoughts in conclusion. There will be sorrow and pain, guaranteed. Jesus never promises us ease of life and comfort throughout it in our circumstances. He does promise us ease and comfort in Him. Even in the, That is true comfort. If you can have comfort in the midst of weeping and sorrow, if you can have peace when the rest of the world is broken, that is a peace that passes understanding. So the first thing I have to tell you, weep over your own sin. If you are not broken to your very core over your own sin, check your pulse. Weep over your own sin. There should be sorrow at how wicked we are. It sent Jesus to the cross, and there is no sugarcoating this. But believe in him. Because if your sin sent him to the cross, your sin was also buried with him. And you rise again with him to new life and rejoice in him. And there is peace passes understanding in the midst of the trial in the midst of the fire in the midst of the sorrow that no power of hell and no scheme of man can ever take away from us amen Amen. this only comes because our savior is risen and ruling hallelujah praise the lord let's pray Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are high and lifted up. You are exalted above all else. You are robed in splendor and majesty. The very skies declare your handiwork. But we are wicked and sinful. We are separated from you by our own wickedness and we can only reconciled be reconciled to you by Christ's righteousness let us weep when we think about our sin let us come to sorrow when we think about the the sin in the world let our hearts be broken over the pain that sin causes but let us look to Jesus who endured the cross for the joy that was set before him the founder and perfecter of our faith Let us rest in him and find our joy in him. Help us in our weakness. Spirit, intercede for us when we don't know the words to say, when we forget the joy, when we listen to the lies. Remind us of the gospel 
Give us assurance. Break us where we need to be broken. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that Jesus counted it joy to die for sinners like us. And it is in his mighty name we pray because there is no other name by which we can pray. Amen.